All right, well, we're going to be in Esther. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll go all the way through the first few verses of chapter 4. Um, our tendency when we read the Bible, particularly when we read stories, narratives in Scripture, is often to look for moral examples. Who is good? Who is praiseworthy? Who are the good guys, the good examples to follow? And then we want to see them do well and succeed, and we want to see their enemies fail and, and be defeated and all this. If only it were that simple. This is not exactly how Scripture works. This is not exactly how the God behind Scripture works. And Esther, for one, really pushes back against this kind of reading, just looking for the good guys and bad guys and then and going along with that. Um, as we saw last week, we have Esther, who becomes queen, seems like a good thing, and as queen, she is used to, to save God's people from being extinguished. So that's good, right? And yet, as we saw last week, she becomes queen by making herself sexually available to this pagan king. king. And as queen, she's really nothing more than a glorified slave to this king and one of numerous women that he goes into. This is not a great position to be in. She is no great moral example, at least in this. And then you have Mordecai, her uncle, who will also play a pivotal role in saving the Jews, but he also isn't all that great of an example. He allows Esther to go into this, this contest and to become queen, and he tells Esther to hide her identity as a Jew. Don't make known that you're a, of God's people. And, and neither of them seem to be very religious in, in the sense of being faithful to God and his commands. And so when we read this, we, we, can, see, we can be kind of conflicted. There's, there's no easy line here between the good people and, and the bad people, between those who deserve God's blessing in everything and those who deserve God's curse. However, we do have the people who, though they are not good, they are gods. We have the covenant people of God, the people that he has set his love on, that he's revealed himself to, that he rescued out of Egypt, made himself known to, that he gave his commands and called them to live for his glory. The people of Israel, the Jews, which Esther and Mordecai are. And the question is, what difference does that make? Does that make any difference? Does it mean anything to belong to God's people? That's the question that's going to run through this book. And that question applies to our lives as well. So we'll get into that. We're going to start in 2.19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, just a quick note. Um, this implies that Mordecai now has a position, some position in the king's court. Um, apparently with Esther becoming queen, Mordecai was given a, an official role in the king's court. That's what sitting at the king's gate meant. Going on, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this became to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, if God is providentially ruling over all things, which we've been talking about and which he is, God is working providentially some good things for Mordecai here. Uh, Mordecai is given this position in the court, and then God brings him to just happen to be in the right place at the right time to overhear this plot against the king. And Mordecai thus, really by no doing of his own, is allowed to save the life of the king. And what you would expect at this point with how the author is telling the story is that Mordecai is about to be honored. Persian kings, we know, generously honored those who uh, showed loyalty. So reading this, surely great blessing is about to come on Mordecai, which makes what comes next surprising. So immediately after this, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So instead of Mordecai being honored for saving the king's life, this Haman the Agagite is honored and promoted, put, in second as, put as second in command. Now, this is where the lines start to become a, lo- a little clearer. Not between the good people and the bad people, but between those whom God will protect and save, between God's people and those whom he will frustrate and fight against. You see, this conflict here, if you read closely and then you start to look into some of this elsewhere in Scripture, is not just between Haman and Mordecai, but between Haman the Agagite and Mordecai the Jew. And the author of Esther is very clear to make that known. When Haman is introduced, he is Haman the Agagite. When Mordecai is introduced, he is Haman the Jew. Now, to understand this, we have to go back a little bit in our Bibles. So, Agagites, or Agagites, came from King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, as one author puts it, were a heathen nation that had the dubious distinction of being the first people of the world to attack and try to destroy God's newly formed covenant people. So, Now, keep in mind that the Jews of this time are not just an ethnic group. They're a religious group. These are the people of God, the people God was beginning to reveal himself and his will and his purposes to make himself known to the world, beginning with the Jews. And then through them, they were to be witnesses. And when God rescued the Jews out of Egypt, 
And they were making their way through the desert, and they were coming to Mount Sinai, where, where God would give them the Ten Commandments and reveal himself to them in, in a greater way. On their way to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites came and tried to destroy them. And so we read in Exodus 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek, from whom come the Amalekites, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from, gen Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if you skip forward a, a good bit in Scripture, during the time of King Saul, when King Saul was king over the Jews, Saul was commanded to attack the Amalekites, who still survived, as part of the fulfillment of God's promise here. Uh, Saul disobeyed. He didn't fully do this, and he kept King Agag, their king at the time, alive. And then over time, this term Agagites, the Agagites, came to be used not just for one specific group, but for any and all enemies of Israel. And so during Jesus' time in the first century, the Romans were called Agagites, kind of this term of derision. Even in more modern times, uh, Israel... Or, Palestinians in Israel have been called Agagites. This term even survives till today. And so if you were a Jewish reader reading this story of Esther, it was clear that Haman is not just any other guy. This is Haman the Agagite, as it will go on to say in verse 10, the enemy of the Jews, with his people being the enemy of of the Jewish people. And this helps explain a couple of things going on in this passage. First, why does Mordecai refuse to pay homage to Haman? It's probably not because of religious reasons. He's not being asked to bow to, to, to like religiously worship Haman. He's just asked, being asked to, to honor him. And the text implies that his refusal has something to do with him being a Jew. And so what's probably going on is this ancient conflict between the Jews and the Amalekites or the Agagites. And Mordecai doesn't want to honor a member of a people who have been his people's enemy, especially when, well, this guy just got the position that I should have gotten. This also explains Haman's vast overreaction to being refused honor, right? Haman doesn't merely seek to punish Mordecai for this, but seeks to wipe out all the Jews for Haman's refusal to give him honor. And like we talked about last week, given how large this Persian empire was, over 127 provinces from India all the way to, to Egypt and, and, and farther, like this would have completely annihilated the Jews, most likely. This would have been the end of the Jewish people. And so that's what's at stake here. This, the very survival of the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the descendants of the people that God had made a covenant with and the fulfillment of God's promises to and through this people. The story continues, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, casting lots was a, 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 a way of doing divination, of seeking the, 
direction, advice from, from the gods. When is, this, when is this to be? When are we to do this? Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people, peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the, lang in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly and by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So Haman is clearly on a warpath here. He, he tells the king that this people doesn't keep the king's laws, but really what he has record of is one man refusing to honor him. He says it's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them, but he doesn't, doesn't seem to even make known who this people are. And he certainly doesn't make known that the king's very wife is one of this people. He offers to put 10,000 talents of silver, this was 750,000 pounds of silver, into the king's treasury in order to do this and convince the king to do this. Uh, probably this was to be gained from the Jews themselves after they were terminated. And then the king, for himself, seems to be completely inept, just going along with whatever his advisors tell him to do. And this isn't the first time that he's done this. Uh, we saw this in chapter 1 as well. A few more verses, and then we'll, we'll unpack some of this. So chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that he had done, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, just imagine the situation among the Jews spread out over this kingdom. They are hearing this news, they are in mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting, hearing that they are threatened to being, being annihilated. Now, it's interesting that it doesn't say they were praying. In a book that doesn't ever mention God, it would seem like this would be a very easy place to mention God, that they were praying to God. But surely many of them were praying 
for some reason the author doesn't say that. At the same time, as, this, as the Jews are feeling this and are completely disrupted, you have the king and Haman doing what? Sitting down to a nice relaxing drink. Completely unfazed by the great evil that they have planned. And the overarching question as we read this is will they prevail? Will the enemies of God and his people prevail? Or will God intervene and rescue his people? Surely this is what Mordecai and all the Jews are wondering and pleading with God about. Now, this is made more complicated by the fact that God's people haven't exactly been faithful to God. God did say he would be their God and bless and protect them, but that was if they remained faithful to the covenant that he made with them, faithful to worship him alone. But they had failed miserably and regularly at this. That's why Mordecai and Esther are in this, in Susa, in Persia, in the first place, because God had exiled his people out of their land for their disobedience. So they certainly don't deserve God's intervention and salvation. Again, this is not the good guys who deserve God's blessing and the bad guys who don't. This is, on the one hand, the pagan Persians who don't acknowledge God at all, and then the Jews who were supposed to be witnesses to the one true God by their faithfulness to him and the covenant, but instead they turned to idols and they were really no better. So what hope did they have? Again, the question is, will God hear his people? Will he deliver them, even after they've been faithless? Now, as we will see, the answer will be yes, he will. But we need to understand that this is not about righteous people crying out to God and being heard because of their righteousness. This is about a people chosen by God purely by grace, being rescued out because of the faithfulness and the promises and the purposes of God. God wasn't finished with Israel. God had made all of these promises about what he would do in and through them, and he would keep these promises. And so their only hope was for God to be who he said he was, for God to keep his promises. Their only hope was in God and not in themselves. What does all of this have to do with us today? What does this story 2,500 years ago in a far-off distant land have to do with us? Well, a couple things. First of all, this has to do with us because God's faithfulness to sustain Israel is about God's faithfulness to bring a Savior from Israel for the whole world. God is here sustaining the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the line of Judah, the line of David, the line, as we saw a few weeks ago, of Boaz and Ruth, and the line of the people here threatened to extinction because he is bringing Jesus, the Savior of the world. Jesus' apostle John wrote in 1 John, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God's purposes with preserving his people Israel here are connected to his grand purpose to bring a Savior for all people. 
And when we read the Bible as a whole and see the big story that God is weaving, that's what this is about. This is about. God has an invincible plan to draw people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation into his loving fold and to live with them for all eternity. And he will complete that plan even when threatened like this. And ultimately, he does complete this plan by coming into his world in the person of Jesus and living the life that we were meant to live, dying for our sins in our place, taking the judgment for our sins deserved so that we could have peace with God. And Jesus did this for pagan Persians and for wayward Jews alike. Jesus died for all who would call on his name down to this very day including you and I. Secondly, this has to do with us because we are in many ways in the same position as the Jews spread out over the Persian Empire. The Jews of Esther's day are the covenant people of God in a way that the church today is the covenant people of God. Now, yes, I do believe there is still a sense in which the Jews will play a part in God's plan, a unique role. That's a slightly different issue with many opinions. But at this point in time, in the Old Testament, the Jews and those who, who join themselves to the Jews are the people of God. They're called into a relationship with God. They have been shown the holy and gracious character of God. They've been called to live as witnesses of God as they obey his commands. And this role today belongs to the church, to all who are joined by faith to Christ. God's people are not defined by ethnicity, by country, but by Christ, by what you make of Christ. Do you boast in Christ or do you find him foolish and are you indifferent to him? And so even though the Jews of this time had been faithless, and were experiencing some of God's judgment for this, they were still his people. And they were wondering, again, does that make any difference? Or will our enemies prevail? Will the enemies of God's purposes and his people prevail? Will our sin as his people have the last word and ruin the plans of God? And we today also wonder, can we hope in God? What hope do we have when confronted by evil, wicked powers, empires, rulers of this world? You see, this is not just a one-off situation 2,500 years ago. Behind this particular instance of, of evil is a much larger and longer conflict between God and the devil. Behind this and in our world that we live in under the devil's influence is a world that is set in opposition to God and to his people. You see this throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. You see this in the life of Jesus as he comes, this opposition from the devil and his forces. You see this in the lives of the early believers in Acts, and you see this throughout church history. And the rest of the New Testament tells us that this will continue, that the devil is real and the devil is set against God and his people. Um, sometimes we tend to downplay this, or maybe some of us more than others. 
We, we tend to expect or at least hope for just understanding and tolerance and respect in this world. Can't we just all get along? We, we forget about the spiritual cosmic realities at play. That there's a war going on. That our lives are lived out in the midst of a war. We're reminded of this in Ephesians 6. And, and reminded and com- commanded to fight well. Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. But the hard part in this is when it seems like we are on the losing end. The hard part is when the enemy, the devil and his agents, seem to succeed. When someone like Haman succeeds. When those who do not acknowledge God at all seem to get the upper hand and seem to win in fighting against God and his purposes. Sometimes it's hard to see how God is providentially ruling over his world. And we cry out, are we not your people, God? Where are you? Do you not hear our cries? Are you not powerful to act? Why do hatred and bitterness and your enemies seem to win? Well, Scripture is, has no shortage of comforts, truths, promises to offer us in, this, in these times. And I want to end by just list, giving you three things to hold on to when this is what life is like. First of all, God in his word gives us numerous warnings that this will be the case. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is going to be a reality for God's people in this world. Now, we also need to remember that every time we face opposition or are ridiculed or corrected or persecuted isn't because of our faith. Sometimes we might deserve it. Sometimes we need it. But even when we're faithfully living for God, we will face opposition and weakness and hatred and dismissal. We shouldn't be surprised. Secondly, God gives us the language of lament. God gives us words to use, language to use, when it seems like the enemies of God are are winning. Because it will seem like that. Psalm 73 is a great place to turn. And I want to read most of the psalm. There is so much here to, to resonate with, to, to use and, and put into, use for your own cries and prayers to God. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And, and don't just read 
Old Testament ethnic Israel, but to God's people. Truly, God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Essentially, this makes no sense. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Jumping down a few verses to verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. These are wonderful words to keep in mind and to recite, to pray. And when we hear the word of God and we hear his promises for those who cling to him and we hear his judgments on those who reject him and refuse him, and when we believe this, we see the true state of things. We, we see that it is not worth it to be among the wicked. That the success and ease of the wicked now is not to be desired, is temporary, is an illusion. It's not worth it. What is good and worth it is to make the Lord God my refuge. To trust in him. To trust that the Lord is sovereign over all kings, all presidents, all governors and rulers and powers, and he will get the victory. And he will get the vindication along with his people. And this leads to a third and final thing that God gives us, and that is promises of his victory and his vindication. I want to just read a couple verses from Romans 10. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So whoever you are, Whatever your family line, your background, whatever your people, whatever you've done, you can call on the Lord and he will bestow his riches on you greatly. 
He will not let you be put to shame. You can come to God with faith in his blood-bought mercy and have peace with God and favor with God. Everyone. All. And we can do this because God keeps his promises. And he keeps them just as much when we are faithless. We can always call on him as we sang earlier. And he will hear us. He is strong and kind. We can always come to Jesus. Let's pray.